Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 148, Jewel of the Empire. Now that we've covered the occupation of Manchuria, the co-opting of local elites, and the effects that this new level of aggression had on life back in the home islands, I'm going to turn my attention to just what the resulting state of Manchukuo was in practice, and why it was so important to Japan's historical trajectory. This is going to be a chronologically broad episode, basically covering events and trends all through the 30s and even into the war years. But conditions within Manchukuo had a tendency to change every few years, so instead of making brief check-ins here and there, I'm going to give you a much more comprehensive overview of how it all worked. The puppet state of Manchukuo represents the beginning of a trend for the aggressor states of World War II that would run through all the way to 1945. Namely, the securing of foreign conquests not through outright, complete annexation, but rather in setting up a government of collaborators. These satellite states came in all shapes and sizes, and they were set up on a case-by-case basis. And in many of those cases, they were replaced by a different kind of collaboration as set up if the original arrangement no longer satisfied the goals of the commanding nation. In utilizing these dependent governments, there was at least a public veneer of representing domestic interests, whatever the actual reality was. It would at least give an excuse to collaborate to those willing to shed national pride and act primarily to their individual benefit. And that was how Menchukuo came about, whatever Japanese propaganda that I touched on last week might have said to the contrary. The Kwantung army sought out the powerful Chinese of the region in order to act as their rubber stamps, not to govern the nation independently. Manchukuo was initially declared a republic and in 1934 was switched over to an empire, but neither name suited the state, as it was run from the various ministries. The central figure of the Emperor Puyi was very much the figurehead, and so the bureaucracy handled the actual governing. The nation was run from what was called the General Affairs Board, which functioned as a cabinet of sorts, and handled setting up a budget and important appointments. And while the top levels were manned by Chinese, each ministry had their own Japanese handlers present to provide them (coughs) guidance. In addition, the Director General of the General Affairs Board was always a high-level Japanese official. You can be sure that when important decisions were made by Manchukuo's ministers, there was someone in the room making sure that they were acting in Japan's interests. The state also had no constitution to fall back on, although, in a pinch, officials could point to Manchukuo's initial Declaration of Independence and uh, the accompanying government organization law from back in March 1932 as a founding document that provided the basis of the nation's laws. That being said, those didn't cover everything and were helpfully vague in their declarations of intent so the authorities could very much make things up as they went along. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned the rise of the so-called new bureaucrats within the Japanese government, and how their outlook on governing was an authoritarian one that ruthlessly pushed an expansionist version of the national interest. Things like civil rights, public welfare, and democratic decision-making were not in their wheelhouse. The thing was, though, that they couldn't quite act true to their vision in the home islands, as while they were in the ascendancy politically, uh, there was still plenty among the establishment that prevented them from treating Japan like a video game, where you simply hit some buttons to make numbers go up, and if some people got ground up into the dust in order to do that, it all worked out, because number went up. 
Previous generations of Japanese colonial bureaucrats had taken a more benign approach. And yes, I'm using the phrase more benign very loosely here, but they were selected because of some kind of connection or knowledge of the colony they were to work in. Not so with this new crop. They didn't know Manchuria, and they didn't really care. They didn't have the same barriers in Manchukuo as back home. If the Chinese bureaucrats were hesitant to make decisions that would make the lives of their own people worse, or dislocate them entirely, they could be overruled. In Manchukuo, the new bureaucrats could test and incubate their ideas of governing away from prying eyes and resistant authorities. The only thing they had to watch out for was the Kwantung army. Even above the Japanese bureaucrats, the, ar the army officers were the supreme rulers of the land. If the Japanese civilians managed the ministries, then they themselves were managed by the Kwantung officers. Not to say that this didn't work out for the two groups of Japanese, far from it. The end goal of both the bureaucrats and the officers was largely the same, that Manchukuo would be economically developed to feed and support Japan's own economy, allowing it to punch above its weight. That was basically the Japanese thesis in Manchuria. And the Japanese didn't half-ass it when it came to pouring money into the region either. In the first five years of its existence, Manchukuo received close to the same amount of Japanese investment that the region had gotten from them in the 25 years before the occupation. In the first decade, Japanese investments would match those made in the entire empire from 1895 to 1930. And in the hands of the new bureaucrats, that money was going to be put to much more focused use. Previously in the colonies, money sent in by the government would be used to subsidize and encourage privately owned commerce, normal Western Empire stuff. Private investment was also encouraged by offering economic concessions at rock-bottom prices to private buyers. Manjuko functioned a lot differently. Money coming in would be carefully managed to build up resource extraction and industrial production above all else, and if private investors wanted to get in on the action, then they need to work under government oversight. The economy would be state-managed and to ensure that superfluous consumer good production would be avoided. Manchuko was to serve Japanese demands, not materially enhance the native Chinese. What resulted was a carefully managed command economy that was fully plugged into the greater Japanese one. This connection was apparent by the puppet state's currency system. Under Zhang Zhulang, the monetary system of the region had been a disaster, with almost a dozen separate paper currencies in circulation. The reason for this was because Manchuria isn't a province by itself. It's more of a geographic expression with multiple provinces within it, along with localities that had independent enough economic ecosystems that they printed their own money and got away with it. Zhang and his father had both taken advantage of the situation to print huge sums of money to play an economic shell game that by 1931 had left Manchuria in chaos. Manchukuo was declared a state. One of the first orders of business was to withdraw all the old notes from circulation and replace them with two new ones. The first would be the normal spending currency that people used in the day-to-day, -day, while the second was a currency backed by gold to be used to trade with Japan. In the mid-30s, this was further simplified by removing the trade currency and tying the value of the main one to the value of Japan's currency, the yen, uh, thus securing a predictable value, which all obviously bound the economy of Manchukuo to that of Japan and meant that the financial sector between the two was, for all intents and purposes, merged into one. While the lot of the average workers living in Manchukuo couldn't be said to have gotten better over this time period, the on-paper achievements of the economy were striking. Industrial production tripled in a decade, 
and Manchukuo alone became the second most developed and advanced economy in East Asia, behind only Japan. All this investment created new demands for labor, and while the Japanese worked to restrict immigration from China proper in favor of Japanese and Korean settlers, more on that in a bit, hundreds of thousands of Chinese continued to move into Manchukuo regardless of what stage the Sino-Japanese conflict was in. And then in 1939, the authorities decided that expanding industrial production was a higher priority than population control, and those restrictions were lifted, which resulted in over a million Chinese moving into Manchukuo every year thereafter until the end of the war in 1945. There would be no shortage of labor in Manchukuo's economy. By 1943, the state was producing as much coal as China proper and nine times the steel. The steel output was of particular importance because it actually exceeded Japan's own production of that vital material. Again, Japan would not have been able to accomplish what they eventually did without the support of their puppet state. As you might imagine, the rewards of the expanding economy were not shared evenly. The Japanese, whether directly through the state control or through a business conglomerate like Mantetsu, directly controlled 75% of the nation's commerce, with native Chinese businessmen not getting the support or patronage necessary to be competitive. And Chinese workers could expect to receive pay of around only 30% of their Japanese counterparts. Despite that, conditions in China proper were usually so desperate that this was still attractive to migrant labor, and the average household wealth in Manchukuo was 50% greater than in the rest of China. The Manchurian economy began to take a turn in 1936 at the behest of the new bureaucrats. By then, Manchukuo had been mostly secured, and ambitious eyes were turning south towards China proper. Manchuria would not just be a simple industrial colony to Japan, but it would also be a major production base for the Japanese army. Then there was a fear among the civilians and army officers on the scene that the money pouring in from Japan wasn't actually turning an immediate profit. Oh, the economy was humming, just that in the first five years or so, there was much more coming in from Japan than there was going back. The quest to mitigate this and turn Manchuria into a net positive on the balance sheet is where state control really came into play. In 1936, Manjuko's government set up a collection of 26 new manufacturing companies, each in a specific sector such as shipping, automotives, aviation, etc., that would act as springboards to get those industries going in the region. Then, in 1937, a five-year plan was started, which aimed at expansion of heavy industries and high production figures. This was also when calls were made to settle Japanese farmers in Manchuria. The initial plan for that called for 5 million settlers, although this fell far short of the mark and by the end of World War II, came to only around 300,000 people. A significant number, but one that meant Japanese farming settlements were tiny islands surrounded by far vaster numbers of Chinese. It turned out that enticing Japanese farmers to leave their overcrowded native countryside required free land and generous subsidies. And even then, it wasn't actually all that enticing. The fact that settlers would effectively sever their relationships with their home villages and expect to live in Manchuria for the rest of their lives probably didn't help. Which, hey, given that they were confined to what were effectively armed encampments in a vast territory surrounded by people that weren't thrilled by their presence, I can't blame those who chose to stay at home. Those who did make the switch quickly entered into a whole new world. Japanese farms were tiny in comparison to the millions of acres doled out to the relatively small number of colonists. 
and their settlement displaced large numbers of Chinese and also Koreans already working the land. And those small-time Japanese farmers were badly inexperienced with running the huge operations they were assigned to in Manchuria, and often resorted to hiring back on the same Chinese and Koreans they had displaced. Then there was the little fact that the farming operations were actually state-run. The farmers were told exactly what to produce, were sold supplies by the government, and had to sell what they produced directly to the state. Even the Japanese farmers were effectively playthings for the bureaucrats. Far more numerous were the urban Japanese settlers who enjoyed living in their own neighborhoods under the watchful eye of Kwantung garrisons, all the while reaping the profits of the industrial expansion going on. And it was among that urban business community that there arose some tension within the Japanese camp. The army was in control in practice, but they needed the expertise of the businessmen to actually execute their vision. The problem was that the officers had a very exact vision and how it should be carried out, although they didn't exactly know how to reconcile the two. The businessmen, meanwhile, understood how to get industries going, but were far more open to making the kind of compromises that the officers were not. Basically, the suspicion of profit-driven capitalism that was on display back in the home islands was present in Manchuria as well. This led to the Zaibatsu being held at arm's length for the first few years of Manchukuo's existence, aside from Mentetsu, of course, but that group had already long since made its accommodations with the military. This all changed after 1936, and the thinking of those in charge increasingly became results-driven. Also, by that time, the Zaibatsu had themselves come to an understanding with the military back at home, so the fear of rampant capitalism getting in the way of territorial expansion was lessened. Especially after the Real Deal War with China kicked off in 1937, the Zaibatsu started making inroads in Manchuria, most notably Nissan. In fact, Nissan's involvement in Manchukuo's economy became such a big part of the company that its corporate headquarters relocated to that nation's capital, Sinking, modern-day Chengchun. Part of the overdrive on production was spearheaded by the conglomerates pouring in further investments to exploit the cheap labor and ample resources of the region. All right, I've been talking about the economic importance of Manchukuo, but just what was the new state really supposed to be? I mean, we already covered that it was a puppet state, dependent on Japanese leadership, and geared to serve the larger empire. But that kind of thinking really wasn't popular among the people actually living there, and it didn't lend itself to stability, regardless of how much, or rather, how little autonomy it had. The underlying ideology, if it could be called that, of Manchukuo was embracing Pan-Asianism. I believe I touched on this a little last season as an alternative that many thinkers across East Asia turned to as their efforts to embrace the West were met with racist rejections. The most extreme example, of course, was Japan itself. They completely overhauled their society to modernize on Western lines, and it was only through force of arms that they were begrudgingly awarded a seat at the table. With the conquest of Manchuria, Japan found itself isolated from the West, with the old understandings fading into the background. In the case of China, they overthrew their old empire and created a republic, again on Western lines. But their treatment vis-à-vis -vis the West did not change. Among the widespread colonies of East Asia, local elites in the intelligentsia internalized Western methods, but their standing in Western eyes did not improve. Across the greater region, people began turning away from the West and instead embraced the idea of a greater Asian community that would create a mutually supportive economic and maybe even political unit that would focus on cooperation and development. 
And if that word salad sounds to you at least a little like some kind of greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere, well, that's kind of where the term came from. Because Japan, in its quest for empire, coached its expansion in terms of detaching East Asia from the West and creating an alternative power block. In the Japanese conception, this was distorted a great deal to become an arrangement where Japan formed the center and the other nations of the region would feed its already developed economy. But whereas the World War II conquests functioned overwhelmingly as resource providers, Japan was in China long enough to take a more complex role than that. Because to be sure, Japan's position vis-a-vis Manchukuo was colonial, but it was a different kind of colony when compared to Western ones. The most important distinction was in the development of industry. Whereas colonies elsewhere were simple resource extraction operations, the Japanese poured tons of money into creating manufactories. Yes, it was primarily focused on heavy industries and armaments, but these were far more advanced enterprises than anything seen in the Western colonies, save for the modest industrial developments in India and Vietnam. And even then, those examples weren't really encouraged, but merely a byproduct to how large the local economies were. Manchukuo was deliberately an industrial colony. And no, I'm not getting back into economic history again, but this fact is important for ideological reasons. The Manchukuo government could point back to the regime of the two Zhengs and highlight their corruption, the widespread economic chaos, and general backwardness of Manchuria, and then contrast it with their own progress. Oh, their state was corrupt as hell too, but it wasn't to the self-destructive degree that the warlords had been. And the authoritarianism was explained away as the price of societal stability. All those new factories with all those new jobs, those were sure signs that things were going right. Or at least better than in China proper, a claim that could be reasonably backed up by the average material wealth of Manchukuo's households. And the uneven partnership with the Japanese wasn't something hidden away. It was actually played up from time to time. Part of that was because Japanese authorities had a very high opinion of themselves and didn't understand how the Chinese could resent them. But part of it, too, was because of the state identity. Manchukuo and Japan were bonded not by conquest, but by a common East Asian culture. And that common culture had to be liberated from Western influences. A great deal was made out in Japanese propaganda about how the West sought to indenture China, which, hey, fair enough, but also turned a big blind eye to Japan's own activities. The propaganda went that Chinese and Japanese people would work together as a unit to mutually empower each other, with the immediate goal of pulling the rest of China out of their perceived Western domination, and with the potential longer-term goal of doing the same for the rest of Asia. And to do that, they'd have to build armies and a joint economy strong enough to do the job. They basically pulled the parts of Sun Yat-sen's reforms that they liked and made them state policy, with a pan-Asian twist. So when a Chinese worker went into a weapons factory to, oh, let's say, build planes, it was emphasized to him that the work he did was not to glorify the Japanese empire, but rather to liberate his own people and eventually the entire region. This was also used to explain the place of Japanese citizens in Manchukuo. They were brothers-in-arms on the same mission, of expanding modern civilization to work for Asians in general, and not one ethnicity in particular. And I want to pause for a moment before I get too carried away to remind everyone that this was a load of BS. The arrangement exploited everyone for Japan's benefit, but that was the line sold. And it wasn't totally unpersuasive to the general public. 
And the Japanese themselves weren't uniformly cynical either. There were plenty of businessmen and bureaucrats who came to Manchukuo with an eye towards building a pan-Asian utopia in a land of possibility and opportunity. Their hopes were dashed in the face of never-ending conflict, but they had dreams for a moment. And that spreading of modernity of civilization played into traditional Chinese thinking from back to its empire days, which was played up by the government as acting in accordance with traditional Chinese values. That isn't to say that Manchukuo's government exclusively made appeals to examples from the past. As I talked about a moment ago, having a modern economy was a big claim to legitimacy for the government. This appeal to modernity was expressed as well in both the expansion of the state's infrastructure and in constructing modern cities. The infrastructure was straightforward. 3,200 miles of railroad and 3,100 miles of paved roads were laid down by Mantetsu during Manchukuo's existence. Naturally, the main priority of the upgraded transportation network was to connect the manufacturing, farming, and resource extraction operations of the region, but the government touted the development all the same. And there was some justifiable pride. For example, the Asia Express used the most modern locomotives available to either Manchukuo or Japan, and traveling through southern Manchuria was a faster trip than anything offered in the home islands until well after World War II. Urban development provided even more public achievements. The major cities of the region experienced population booms as migrants from both China proper and Japan moved in to staff the expanding industries. This required both factories to provide places of work and new residential areas to house everyone. Then, of course, there was more expansion as other professions set up to serve the newcomers. New buildings meant the construction sector exploded, raw materials were demanded, it was your standard economic boom time. To better keep city life moving along at a predictable, productive clip, numerous innovations taken for granted elsewhere in the world, but severely underdeveloped in Manchuria, were introduced on large scales. Namely, standardized sewer systems, water infrastructure, electricity, things like that. I suspect part of Japan's commitment to bettering public life was because so many of their own citizens were living in the region's cities, and so they had certain expectations. But then there was also the fact that a healthy population of urban workers was greatly desired as well. I mentioned earlier that the Japanese bureaucrats looked at Manchukuo as a place where they could experiment with new practices of governance. And while ultimately this would result in the Japanese doing everything that they could to force more productivity and output from Manchukuo, many individuals originally came to the region with the idea of creating a more perfect society. An odd result of a new round of crackdowns on the left back in the home islands after 1933 was that much of the intelligentsia that saw themselves removed from their job postings there suddenly started, you know, looking at opportunities in Manchukuo which made economic sense too. It wasn't just the fact that leftist professors, writers, and thinkers were under siege back at home. Money was pouring into Manchuria. Employment back in Japan was competitive, and so new job opportunities elsewhere were really enticing. This migrant intelligentsia class would look upon Manchukuo as an opportunity to start over and do things better. The modern cities and modes of life were expressions of this desire to create a new kind of utopia, one that could hopefully be exported back home. And while most of the money coming in went into expanding industries, there was a focus on beautifying cities as well. The renovated urban centers weren't just brutalist industrial towns. Parks were expanded, lines of trees were planted, and wide boulevards were a common sight. 
The unspoken dark side of this was the fact that these advancements were able to be made, and made quickly, because the administrators were not beholden to anyone. If the state wanted to seize land to build on or circumvent local interests to push a project forward, they were free to do so. This indifferent mentality wasn't totally universal, though. Uh, for example, some Japanese Marxists went out into the countryside to both learn from and also organize Chinese farmers. Uh, but the effects of these do-gooders was unfortunately minimal, and even if there had been successes in building up the Chinese to be more assertive in the day-to-day, -day, the army would certainly crack down on that. Most of the idealists who traveled to Manchukuo eventually abandoned their attempts at utopianism, especially as the pressures of war further south after 1937 led to increased demands on the puppet state, and the direction of the Japanese leadership in general became a lot less tolerant. By 1940, these efforts had largely dissipated, with new social controls that were instituted that further tightened the freedom of movement and also restricted what few civil liberties there were. Given the circumstances, the Manchukuan state made a strong effort at trying to create at least some kind of identity that its populace could engage with. Unfortunately for them, the realities on the ground and the numerous objectives that the state had to achieve meant that any successes were partial at best. Creating an identity based on Pan-Asianism was a necessity on account of the significant presence of the Japanese and Koreans in the country, and a multi-ethnic identity was nothing new in China. When the Republic was originally established way back in 1911, embracing the multinational nature of the greater nation was one of its founding principles, and the accomplishments of modernizing the country were true enough. But there would never be any dismissing the cold reality that the Japanese were running the show, and Manchukuo was designed to serve their interests first and foremost. To the Japanese, that was a great, even admirable thing, and the puppet state could be the first to be counted among the eventual co-prosperity sphere. Understandably, most of Manchuria's population remained uninterested in such grand designs, and were unimpressed as well by their own monarch, the colorless and mostly absent Puyi. The idea of economic advancement in a relatively privileged place, with what was apparently the winning side in East Asia, managed to secure the compliance and collaboration of the general population, but never its loyalty. As long as the bandits were kept in check and the money kept flowing in, the puppet state would continue to hum along. It would not, however, be able to perpetuate its own existence without its Japanese benefactors against outside pressures. The Manchukuan army could act as an internal security force, eventually, but the people weren't willing to fight for a state in such a way that people were expected to fight for their home nation. It was a transactional state with transactional relationships. And due to geography, it would be safe from direct attacks until the final weeks of World War II, which meant that it held together all the way to the end, producing material for what was by then an empire on its last legs. But the moment that war came to its borders, Manchukuo fell apart instantaneously. But for almost 14 years, it acted as a faithful imperial partner. All right, I think I've covered quite enough for, you know, one puppet state, and it's time to return to Japan proper. The period from 1933 to mid-1937 was the final lull of peace before the invasion of China proper would inaugurate over 12 years of continuous warfare. It was also a period of continued instability and retreating away from democracy. The incessant internal conflicts would only be partially resolved, and the changes in leadership would see Japan break from its old allies in favor of committing finally to a unilateral course of expansionism. Join me next week as we cover events up to the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War 
And as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.